Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. My uh, select committee has launched an entire inquiry into the cultures that underpin male violence against women. And let me tell you, those cultures start in schools, they perpetuate in the workplace, and that's exactly what we see in Parliament, a culture where it is okay to belittle and demean women. So it comes from the top? I think so. It's been an odd week in Westminster. With local elections looming on the horizon, it would normally be the week where all parties are making their pitches for why they should be your choice at the polls on Thursday next week. And later on in this episode, I'll be talking about just that with Sir Ed Davey, the leader of the Liberal Democrats and Labour's shadow levelling up secretary, Lisa Nandy. But instead, this week, a different topic has dominated conversation in Westminster. Yes, sexism in Westminster is back on the agenda. First, after the Mail on Sunday published claims from Tory MPs that Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner had tried to put off Boris Johnson by crossing and uncrossing her legs during Prime Minister's questions on the Labour front bench. And then, a few days later, it emerged that a Tory MP had been accused of watching pornography in the Commons Chamber by a colleague. The claims were made at a meeting on Tuesday night where female Conservative MPs shared accounts of alleged sexism and harassment. And someone who was at that meeting was Tory MP Caroline Noakes, who chairs the Women and Equalities Committee. Now, since our interview with Caroline, the Tory MP in question has been named as Neil Parrish, who represents Tiverton and Honiton, and he has had the whip removed. Caroline Noakes, welcome to Chopper's Politics in a rather fetid dungeon here in the Red Lion pub. It smells a bit, doesn't it? It does a bit. Thank you for joining us. It's, it's great to have you on. And it's a perfect week to have you on because some big things are being played out in Parliament, which are deeply uncomfortable for a lot of people. Were you there in this 2022 meeting this week when it emerged, when it was claimed that a colleague of yours, an, an MP, had watched pornography on the, on the government benches? Yeah, I was there. And um, the 2022 is an opportunity for Conservative women in Parliament, not just... MPs but peers as well to get together have a chat about some of the issues that we're facing normally really wide-ranging it'll be policy it'll be personal it'll be practical and uh, whatever evening it was this week was it Tuesday night we Mm. had uh, the chief whip we had the leader of the house and we had the chairman of the party to talk about how you can retain female MPs because loads of us are conscious and I think it was the the chairman of the party that referenced it, the female MPs tend to serve one fewer term than their male counterparts. We tend to be in more marginal seats, so therefore find it harder to win. But in 2019, we saw way too many good, experienced, clever, mm. brilliant colleagues who, for one reason or another, chose to end their careers, probably at the absolute prime of them. And yes, and that, that's why it was set up. And it was an hour-long meeting, and then there was a Q&A, wasn't there? It's usually an hour-long meeting. I think it ran over a bit. Was there a Q&A? Well, it, I mean, it sort of it turned into a, a chance for us to have a very frank conversation with the chief, with the chairman of the party, fewer questions to the leader of the house, and people talking about what they were worried about, what they were concerned about. And one of your colleagues said what? One of my colleagues indicated that she had seen uh, a male MP in the chamber watching pornography on his mobile phone. 
Now, was that a WhatsApp message that may have been opened from a very rude and dodgy friend, or was it watching pornography for a period of time? She was very clear that she had seen him watching pornography. She didn't specify a time period. She just made it clear that she had seen him watching pornography. I would have liked to have seen the chief take immediate action on being told the name. I would have preferred to have seen somebody have had the whip withdrawn immediately because it was corroborated. It was corroborated by a second witness. witness um, although, I think in all fairness, I don't know the detail. I don't know whether the second witness was watching the same incident, the same person mm. as the first person indicated. But if that was the case, and I assume both of them went to the chief and gave the name, if that was the same name and they could identify it was the same time, then you've got instant corroboration. Why do we? Ha- why should we even have to have a situation where a colleague doesn't understand that it's unacceptable to watch pornography in the chamber of the House of Commons. It is bizarre because that place is, well, is a courtroom. It's a court, isn't it? You know, it's the Queen's Palace. I mean, it seems disrespectful on multiple levels to anybody. Many, many levels. To, and to colleagues too. And to colleagues. Let, let alone and, the Queen. And uh, I think there was a, a colleague present the other evening, who said, "Words to the effect of, if that happened in any other workplace, if you were sat in a, you know, in an office and your colleague was watching pornography on a neighbouring computer, that would be an instant disciplinary action. You know, they'd be on gardening leave by that afternoon." Have you ever seen anything like that before? MPs behaving like this before? No, in no, the house I've never, I have never seen a colleague watching pornography in the House of Commons. No, I would have spoken up. Had I done so. Yes. I mean, do you, do you have faith in the process which Chris Heaton-Harris has referred it to? I mean, you, you, no, I don't it sounds I like do. long grass um, to me, or the way and, you're describing it. And I think um, the, the challenge is the length of time that it's taking to uh, address complaints through that scheme. I think there is still a huge measure of reluctance from individuals to come forward and report to that. I think it's a very challenging process. And Certainly the Women and Equality Select Committee, when we did our report into a gender-sensitive parliament, we highlighted the fact that there are still significant concerns about the grievance scheme. So, mm. uh, look, I think I think we'd all acknowledge that these schemes evolve over time. They need to be honed, perfected. Uh, I think in, in the case of that scheme, it needs to be sharpened up. It needs to be much quicker because it's just unacceptable to have these cases hanging over uh, there are dozens now, aren't there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, if Involving you, cabinet ministers. If I you mean, believe the Sunday Times, there are 56 separate MPs who have had complaints raised against them. And I think to have that many outstanding seems an enormous number. And it doesn't, it doesn't work either for the person making the complaint if it drags on. Uh, and it doesn't work for the individual who has a complaint hanging over them. You know, mm. you could have a malicious complaint hanging over you for months and months and months and no resolution brought. So, look, I think... It, it needs to be quicker. Well, what was the reaction of the party's high command when you raised this? You know, Chris Eden-Harris was there, Mark Spencer, the leader of the House, the party chairman, Oliver Dowd. I think Theresa May was in the room. Yeah, I think, I mean, Theresa was certainly at the meeting. I, I assume she was still in the room at that point, although she did leave early. Um, look, I think the chief, the leader of the House, the chairman of the party, they all looked appalled, horrified, mm. um, rightly so. So it's so been taken seriously, isn't yeah, I it? Think, I think it is. And I think, look, we still have a far too blokey culture in the House of Commons. There is no doubt about that. And that is prevalent on both sides of the House. And we have to address that. And part of it, and I always tell people this, and I'm completely candid, it's a lot better than it was in 2010 when I arrived. We're 12 years on. The gender balance is better. But there is still an atmosphere, an air of female colleagues being tolerated rather than celebrated for the undoubted assets that they are to both our parliamentary party, to parliament as a whole. You know, I still look at it and we have too few women in cabinet. We have two, you know, we have two, literally two conservative female select committee chairs. And I want to see us kind of professionalise the way we help people with their careers. It's, it's really obvious, isn't it, that we don't have very many women on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. We don't have very w- many women on the Defence Select Committee. You know, we have to do better at working out what the skills and I can't speak for the whips of other parties but I will speak for the the whips of the Conservative Party need to be doing a much better job of working out who's good at x y and z who's experienced in particular areas and giving guidance and support on how you can hone your career in a particular direction and I would always use me as an example look I spelled 12 years in local government 
I spent 10 years working in the European Parliament. I represent a large rural constituency. I was married to a farmer, for goodness sake. (laughs) And yet nobody has ever thought Noakes might know something about Europe, might know something about local government. I've never been allowed anywhere near, uh, you know, what was MHCLG, DCLG before that, and now is the Department for Leveling Up. Nobody's interested in my thoughts on devolution or Metro Mets. Nobody has ever asked. We had that massive horsemeat scandal back in, uh, it was about 2012. I am the only person in the House of Commons who has ever issued a horse passport. I ran an organisation that was a passport issuing organisation. Is, is, is that on you as MPs not to push yourself forward? Uh, do you know? No offence. Or is it because the whips aren't reading your CV closely and saying, well, well Karen, there's a lot of that. Let's put it into that position. At that time, I went to see David Heath, who was the minister. And I said, David, I can talk to you about equine databases. I can talk to you about horse passports. I can talk to you about phenylbutazone, the drug that you're all worried about. And he went, oh, thank you. Never heard from him again. And I take the view that when it comes to reshuffles, when it comes to appointing PPSs, when it comes to working out which junior minister might be best placed where, then there needs to be much more strategy go into that. And I also think in the select committee process, we need to be thinking about who is good and solid and knowledgeable in areas. Now, it's an election now rather than Mm. appointed by the whip. So that makes it much more of a lottery. But I just think there's very little done to help people identify what they think their career path... Do, we, do women hold back more than men? Is that part of the problem? I think it is part of the problem. I think well, certainly um, when I looked at the select committee elections, very few women put themselves forward for election in the first place. And, and that's problematic. And there is a... And it was Kay Burley who taught me this uh, 12 years ago, is that when she's looking for somebody to interview, to go on her programme, she'll ask a whole range of male MPs and their first question will be, When? Can I make this in my diary? She asks women MPs and they say, what's it about? So the men will go on if they can find a diary slot to talk about any subject under the sun. The female MPs are much more inclined to only talk on the issues that we know about. I know which one I'd rather have on my show. Yes, quite. Now, you said there's, there's a problem in both the Labour and the Tory party. What's your worst experience been as an as a MP, female MP, along these, these grounds, this, this kind of sexism that your colleagues have put up with? What's your worst experience? Do you know... Too many to mention. Uh, there have been incidents that I've reported to the whips. Um, MPs inappropriately touching me. One, I can remember being bullied by one. I mean, God, who's going to try and bully me? Um, but it was when I was relatively inexperienced and I was a, a PPS and, and they said to me, well, the problem is with you that your your office is so disorganised that they're not supporting you properly and you, you aren't assertive enough to get in there and, and tell them how to run your office and I wandered back to my office and I said to my staff I said have you ever have you ever spoken to X and they looked at me and said no I said has he ever called here no has he ever sent an email to you guys no has he ever been to this office and they all looked at me and said no he's never been here what are you talking about oh he's just told me that you lot are disorganized I felt it was just done to belittle and demean me and when that was the same person who had you know fondled my arm in the library in yeah. a particularly unpleasant fashion. Um, but, you know, I, horrible things have happened to me, really horrible things. Touching, staring, bullying, trashing my reputation. You know, I can think of a, a colleague who always, always refers to me by a particularly unpleasant nickname and nobody calls it out. Nobody says, hang on a moment, you really should not. Male, male colleague. A male colleague calls me something vile and I know he does it to members of the press as well. And when I, when I mentioned that in the meeting the other night... I instantly got a text message from a mate of mine who said, I know exactly who that is. And Do you want to say what it is now? No, because it's too to. horrible. Don't say it. It's really horrible. It's a, it's a kind of a, it's a kind of playground culture, isn't it? Or is it, is it locker room culture? Yes, yeah, so I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I always say that the House of Commons is like a boys' prep school. The inmates mm. haven't quite got to 13. With a school bell, of course. Yeah, with a school bell, bell, with wood panelling. You know, some of them find themselves perfectly at home there. But it is also a locker room culture. Just what what the examples are. I mean, oh, look, I, calling it out might tackle well, it. You see, and you see, and I think that's why I spoke out last year when I did the Beth Rigby program mm. with Jess Phillips and Rosanna and Faye Jones. Is that actually one of the problems is is that we're we're afraid to call it out. Female colleagues are worried what the repercussions will be on their career if they speak out, and that's a you're going to troublesome woman, won't you? Then absolutely. You know, and people often said to me, why did you leave it 18 years before you ever referenced anything about Stanley Johnson? And I said, because it would have been easier to get rid of me than to get rid of him. 
Now that was he. He smacked me on the backside mm. and said, "Oh, Romsey, you've got a lovely seat." Whack. I know. It's and I do, you know, people say to me, it was after I was selected to be the candidate for Romsey. He was the candidate for a seat somewhere in Devon. Uh, it was at Blackpool. So whatever year. So I you were 30 years old, you know, you were... Yeah, 2003, I think it was. A grown-up yeah. person. I was a grown-up person, but I was still being demeaned and belittled. And, and people say to me, you know, you were sexually assaulted. I mean, look, he smacked me on the backside. But to me, that wasn't about sexual assault. That was about belittling and demeaning a woman. Hmm. Has he talked to you since you no, raised this? No, he, you know, it was very clear at the time. He didn't know who I was. He didn't remember the incident. One questions whether that's because he did it so often. And, you know, it was Rachel Johnson that reminded me of it. I did her podcast that week. And as we finished it, she said, oh, Romsey, what a lovely seat. And I just looked at her in horror. I'm like, God, this is a family joke to talk about people's seats in that way. Um, awful. And Boris Johnson hasn't raised it with you? Or? Boris Johnson doesn't speak to me. Doesn't he? No. Why not? You should talk to you. You're one of his MPs. Well, and I also think that there is a real challenge around why would the party hierarchy, why would uh, the party chairman not want to address some of the issues that perhaps the most high-profile female MP that they have is continually raising about cultures in Westminster. For goodness sake, my uh, select committee has launched an entire inquiry into the cultures that underpin male violence against women. And let me tell you, those cultures start in schools, they perpetuate in the workplace, and that's exactly what we see in Parliament, a culture where it is OK to belittle and demean women. So it comes from the top? I think so. I mean, that's shocking. I mean, he's got female PPSs who you can raise it with him, can't they, or...? Well, I don't, I don't know what that, uh, what that interaction like, no. relationship is like. I really don't. I think what is really important is that we, as a Conservative Party, have a real challenge with female voters. We also, and I'm very clear about this, as society, as we go into a cost of living crisis, it will be women yeah, that yeah. notice that first. Yeah. It is women that bore the brunt of the pandemic working in insecure low-paid employment. It was women who were most likely to be in those sectors which were shut down first and yeah. shut down for longest. And I think what we as a party have to be doing is focusing on how can we put in place practical female-friendly policies. I've got to raise the issue of Angela Rayner with you. Oh, yeah. She wore trousers yesterday to Prime Minister's questions. We know that we know that is obviously a statement because of the issue of her crossing her legs and not crossing her legs. What's your take on this whole, the whole the idea of this basic instinct row? I mean, it's just, it's like not something from the last century, isn't it? It is, and there was a general discussion I was having with somebody yesterday about when did that film come out? Uh, was it in my... Yeah, you know, not even in my child's lifetime. Look, do I think that Angela has ever gone into the chamber and sought to distract the Prime Minister by crossing and uncrossing her legs? No. No. Do I think that that was an article that the Mail on Sunday should ever have run? No, I don't. I really don't. Even if Angela did make a joke about that on the terrace, uh, and there seem to be plenty of colleagues who've come forward to say that she did make mm. a joke about it on the terrace. I think she was saying almost, look what they're saying about me, joke. Yeah, and you know, the, 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 the challenge that we have, the way women in politics are reported is appalling. I've been on the receiving end of it from the Mail on Sunday. They ran a photograph of me in 2010, which had been taken eight years previously. So it was a really old photo. Uh, and I was sat on a high stool wearing a skirt and you could see straight up my skirt and the tops of what were hold-ups, not stockings for the record. Um, and it was a photo that I would argue was specifically chosen to portray me in a certain light and... I found it humiliating at the time. I look back at it now and I really laugh and I think it's an absolutely amazing photo. <laughs> and I looked stunning in it. Uh, but perhaps you might expect that when I was about 30. Um, <laughs> but I, I have a real concern that still, still in 2022, women are being reported for how they look and men are being reported for what they say. And that, I think, is the state of political journalism in some sections of the media, not all, and I'm very keen to emphasise that. And it worries me because it puts us off. And I was speaking to a constituent back on Saturday, local election time, we're out knocking doors uh, every weekend, and a voter said to me, there aren't enough women for me to choose from. 
And I was explaining to her that it's really hard to find women who are prepared to stand at every level. So whether it's your local council or whether it's for parliament, there is still a challenge that for every three male applicants, there'll only be one female one. And we are put off. As I said, in 2019, a whole bunch of really great women left. Um, And I think some of the reporting that we heard from the 2022 earlier this week was that lots of female MPs in that room were considering standing down. Well, so no, I think there's been some reporting that lots of them were saying that. I didn't hear that. Maybe I wasn't paying adequate attention. Maybe I was sat there shell-shocked from the early revelation. It started with Angela Angela Rayner. She wore trousers yesterday. Do you wear trousers more? Because you don't want to have Um, these comments. When I go shopping for clothes that I wear in the chamber, I will always try something on and sit down in it. I don't think many men, when trying on a suit, sit down in it. And I do that to check. The benches are hideously uncomfortable and they're a funny angle and they're quite low. And so I always do that to check how high will this skirt dress ride up when I'm sitting down? What looks perfectly respectably knee length when you're stood up? Suddenly you've got three Mm. acres of thigh on view. I will dress according to what I'm doing that day. So if I'm doing uh, a media interview where I know I'm going to be sat on a sofa, I will try to wear trousers. Um, If I'm going to be in the chamber, I will, you know, there will be some dresses I'll go, ooh, not that one today. That'll be too short. But it's just wrong, I think, to comment in exactly the same way people were commenting about Angela, we saw the same comment, similar comments, derogatory comments about Tracy Brabin, who wore a dress which slipped off her shoulder a bit. We have seen horrific images taken from the press gallery down at the Prime Minister when it was Theresa May uh, commenting on her cleavage. Uh, The same for Jackie Smith when she was Home Secretary all those years ago. I think there was a headline that accompanied that one of Breastminster. And you only have to go back to 2017 to see that photograph on the front page of the mail of Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister, Theresa May as Prime Minister, and the caption was Lexit. And this this is what puts... These are all reporting you're describing there. Do you think that there should be some comeback for journalists for doing that? Do you think that this reporter should lose their pass at the Mail Sunday? Where are you on the issue? I called for Glenn Owen's pass to be taken off him. I wrote to the Speaker and I highlighted to the Speaker those examples that I've just mentioned to you. And I said... I think, at the very least, the Mail on Sunday should be invited in to explain themselves. And that article... And that led to him calling the meeting, was it? Which I don't think they turned up to, did they? And so, look, I think um, I think there is an, an important conversation to be had about how that sort of reporting... And it's not just the sheer placement of the article. It's the captions that go alongside it. It's the pictures that are chosen. We saw a picture of Angela taken on the This Morning sofa, where, again, arguably her legs were the most prominent feature in that and in it she was wearing a perfectly respectable length skirt it's just i think it's just really uncomfortable that there is this decision to repeatedly use imagery use captions you know it gave them an excuse to run the full sharon stone picture and to me that feels as if sections of the media are determined to undermine her credibility there was a sanction though there was sanction we have to go through ipsa libel laws the ultimate sanction is don't buy the paper, don't read the paper. But you go towards the freedom of the press and you, you lose the argument, I think, for what you're saying. Don't you think that? I think that the Mail on Sunday should have been invited in to explain themselves. I don't think, and I never expected the past to be taken off Glen Owen. I think Glen Owen needs to have a long, hard chat with himself about whether what he did was responsible and the editorial process and whoever the picture's editor was. And if you look at the Mail on Sunday, that's a great long list of men will have made those decisions. How about they have a bit of gender balance in their editorial team? Have you talked to Angie Rayner about what happened to her? I haven't seen Angela since, and so uh, I haven't spoken to her. I did copy her in on my letter to the Speaker saying, you need to have the Mail on Sunday in for a chat. Mm. And has the Speaker replied to you yet? No, he hasn't, but he's probably been a bit busy. (laughs) That was only Sunday that I emailed it to him. What do you want men to do about this in the House of Commons? They should call it out, shouldn't they? I want my male colleagues to call it out when they hear it. I want my female colleagues to be brave enough to report it. I want female staffers to report it. I also think there is a massive problem culturally in that place, uh, not just with harassment and abuse of women, but young men as well. Being harassed themselves? Yeah, absolutely. By who? By older men working in and around Parliament. So are these gay men? Yeah. 
yeah, you know, and I just I would point at one one particular incident, which is that we know one of my uh, colleagues now without the whip, Rob Roberts, harassed both a male and a female member of staff. And when that was reported, there was an enormous amount of sympathy and outpouring of support for the female staffer. And yet the male staffer, it, it merited barely a line in anybody's consideration. Now, look, I think mm. um, I think we need to be alive to the fact that sexual harassment, workplace intimidation and bullying, whilst it is gendered, whilst it does happen predominantly to women, it can also happen to young men. And I think we need to make sure that the reporting mechanisms, the support mechanisms are there for everyone. Is it unusually bad in what we're in Parliament, do you think? This kind of harassment so of I men and women. So I think it's really hard for me to judge whether it's worse in Parliament than it is elsewhere. Certainly over the course of the last few months, I've talked to a lot of women working in the media who have told me that they have experienced similar things. Interestingly, a lot of women working in the city have told me how vastly improved it is there and has been there over uh, you know, the last couple of decades. So we can learn from there. You mentioned they're calling it out. I mean, Boris Johnson did tweet straight away, wrote to uh, Angie Rayner on a Sunday, said, not in my name, all that kind of thing. Yes, he did. I don't know whether he means that or not. I hope he does. I hope that the Prime Minister is making progress in that respect, shall we say. But my view is, is that actually the Prime Minister's public statements on this mm. have been very powerful. I mean, the, the Tory party, just to say it's the party of women, makes these points, having two female prime ministers and Labour's has zero and all this kind of thing. But it appears to be a cultural issue. And I don't think it's a, a cultural issue that's exclusive to the Tory party. I no. think if you look at the trade union movement, which certainly has a massive influence on the Labour Party, women within trade unions will sometimes raise their concerns with me. I think we saw the horrific abuse targeted at female Jewish MPs in Labour in the run-up to the last election. You know, people like mm. Luciana Berger, that is somebody who should still be in Parliament. Ruth Smith, you know, she was not given the support that she needed. And I do feel that it was the women who bore the brunt of that. And I, are we seen as easy targets? I don't know. I think, I think there is a cultural thing that it'll be easier, notionally easier, to try and bully a woman out of a job than a man. Now, it doesn't work with someone like me. That just makes me much more obstinate. And certainly I can remember the case of Ali Goldsworthy and the Liberal Democrats mm. um, and her leaving that party. Look, I think there is something about politics that attracts a certain type of particularly macho, um, willy-waving man. I think it is a, a, a profession where people who are assertive and domineering are attracted to it and I think that causes challenges but I don't think I don't think it's an exclusively conservative problem and I'm absolutely conscious that uh, sexual harassment and bullying happens in way too many workplaces still we should however be leading by example well Caroline Noakes the chair of the Women's and Equalities Committee thank you for joining us in the Redland pub today and let's hope this interview changes things I'll keep my fingers crossed Caroline Noakes there. Well, listeners, I realise that's a difficult topic, but I'd be really interested in what you think of what Caroline had to say. Please email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet us. We're at Choppers Podcast. Right, do stay with us. Coming up, I'll be speaking to Lib Dem leader Sir Ed Davey and Labour's Lisa Nandy about the upcoming local elections. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, turning our eyes to next week's local elections, the Liberal Democrats have seen their numbers severely depleted since they lost power in 2015. 
But recent by-election results have had the Tories slightly on edge about whether Sir Ed Davies' party could be a threat in some southern Tory heartland seats. So I thought it was high time I met up with the Lib Dem leader in his office in Portcullis House in the House of Parliament. And I started by asking him what success might look like for the party in next week's local elections. I think we're going to go forward in many parts of the country. Uh, we're building on the success of the by-elections last year, where in true blue Buckinghamshire, Cheshire Amersham, we, I think, surprised everybody by winning that by-election. And then we went further, and in North Shropshire, in a seat the Conservatives had held for 200 years, uh, we won that seat as well. So that's given us a bit of a spring in our step. And whether it's blue wool seats or, indeed, seats in rural communities uh, across uh, places in Wales, places yeah. in Scotland, we think we can make... Uh, make uh, progress. Uh, I'm not going to put a number on it because one of our criticisms of uh, the Conservative government and some Conservative councils is they've been taking people for granted and that's what we've heard from a lot of lifelong Conservative voters. So we're, we're not going to take the votes for granted, we're going to keep working uh, till the close of polls. Ed Davey, I know you like Twitter, but why should someone vote Lib Dem? Go on, say it in a tweet. Um, if you want a local champion for your communities and a fight for a fair deal uh, for you, your family and your community, vote Liberal Democrat. Mm. Where our strength is in community politics, where we are from the community, work with the community, by the community and uh, listen to their issues. And that is one reason where the government is going wrong, in my view, mm. and where a number of Conservative councils appear to be going wrong. They, they've forgotten that they need to reflect their community, not their partisan interest and where we've done that really well Liberal Democrats have got really well uh, dug in and you know going back to the Parliamentary by-elections you know when we were in North Shropshire for example we actually didn't know what was going to be the big issue there but we went and talked to people and we let them tell their story and the story in North Shropshire was of ambulance waiting times I mean it, it was it was really weird about every other door was saying either they their relative their neighbor their friend had had to wait hours for an ambulance to take them to a hospital uh, and they were pretty upset and distressed and a bit angry about that um, and so we said well okay let me examine it it turned out that a lot of community ambulance stations have been closed that the uh, West Midlands Ambulance Service wasn't really being run very well and so we, we exposed that and that got us into a big debate about the NHS and um, people felt that we were responding to the issues that, that matter to them and their yeah, family. I saw the leaflets up there, and of course the Tories were damaged by having a, a candidate from Birmingham, which if you live from North Shropshire, Birmingham is a long way away. It might, might as well be the moon, you know. It may as looks near on the yeah. map, but if you're local in North Shropshire, Birmingham is not where people come from. Well, you reinforced my point about community. Um, I think people want to know that the person they're voting for knows their community and is from their community and um, understands it not in a sort of superficial way, but feels it. They live the experiences of the uh, That, that really matters. You're, you're pushing police station closures, aren't you, at the moment in yeah, your campaign? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Is that a similar issue you're finding across the country? Yeah, I think uh, since uh, 2015, there's been over 200 police stations and counters closed. It's bigger in different areas. So Thames Valley got a really bad situation there in, in Buckinghamshire, Berkshire and Oxfordshire. And so we're really focusing in on that. It's not just, however, station and counter closures. It's actually police numbers and community visible uh, police. Boris Johnson promised 20,000 police officers. He's, he's fallen behind. He's nowhere near on track for that. I think people are noticing that. They're noticing a rise in antisocial behaviour. That's really coming up on the doorstep. A lot of crimes going unsolved, rise in serious crime. Um, and we've had figures out today arising domestic violence, really quite worrying. So um, on the doorsteps, yeah, crime is coming up in quite a few and that's areas. a lived experience, isn't it, of people? Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, we're putting forward ideas. Uh, we're saying, for example, get rid of police and crime commissioners. They cost 50 million quid, and really, what are they offering? Put that money on the front line. Um, and we also think it's, yes, it's about community police officers. It's also about youth services, and we think money should be ring-fenced for local authorities so they are working with young people. How have you improved the Lib Dems since that difficult time in 2019 when the party had a, a, a drubbing at the polls? I think in two ways. First of all, focusing in on what 
matters to people, what matters to communities and really listening. I think when I took over, I said I wanted to listen to people and I've actually gone and done that. Mm. I talked to a lot of people and cost of living, of course, really come to the fore in the last uh, six months or more. People really worry about tax rises. I've been, well, not shocked to be honest, but I've been disappointed by how many people feel that the tax rises um, are, are just beyond the pale. I mean, the Tories have, the Tory government has really uh, hurt people when they need to help. And it's not just individual households paying the national insurance rise or the higher income tax through freeze, freezing the thresholds. It's businesses as well. So a lot of traditional Conservatives have felt let down you know, at a time when their heating bills are going up, their, you know, their food bills are going up, their motoring costs are going up. They feel it's not the right time for the government to be shoving up taxes. And you're targeting annoyed Tory voters are you or disaffected Labour voters where's your base going to come from where are you growing oh we're appealing to all, all mm. voters yeah. <laughs> that's all the yeah, yeah. frustration I suppose yeah, from yeah, the, but, the two but, main parties I mean to give you an example we've said that there should be a tax cut a large tax cut uh, tax cut uh, in VAT of 2.5% that's worth an average £600 to, to, to families and that would you know, help everybody and I think the cost of living crisis is across the board and while we do have some target proposals for, for pensioners and uh, the, the least well off I think this is, a, this is a crisis an emergency which is affecting everybody and we, we need solutions that are going to help everybody mm. and you're, you're targeting rural Tories too aren't you which is interesting yeah, well rural communities yeah. uh, you know I was in Powys the other day, in Mid Wales, in the Highland Islands in Scotland. I was in West Oxfordshire uh, recently. And what people were saying is it's all very well, the government talking about electricity and gas bills. We think they should be doing more, by the way, but the government's focused on that. They've forgotten the 1.5 million people living in rural communities who survive on heating oil. Heating oil is unregulated, there's no price cap on it. Um, and it's uh, it's actually a lifeline for uh, people in rural Not communities. Not just Argus, it's also... Uh... Oh, no, this is... No, I think sometimes people forget there's a lot of poverty in rural communities, a lot of poverty, uh, and people on, you know, very low incomes who are doing, you know, working hard, looking after the families, caring for the families, um, playing by the rules, and they feel excluded, they feel forgotten, they feel taken for granted. And so we've said, look, there should be a similar approach to that approach being adopted for electricity and gas bills. It seems fair. It should be a, a price cap. Um, and above that price, the government should, should come in. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure clearly why it's not part of the, of the price cap, but I mean... Well, because it, it's not... Re- at the moment, heating yeah, oil and LPG yeah, exactly. are not regulated by Ofgem, yeah. and the government have just left, left them out. And Conservatives, I, th- I think... Mm people used to think that they spoke for rural communities, for farmers and, uh, and, and uh, villages and so on. Um, the fact that they've not done anything for this has left quite a few people quite angry and, and, and isolated. And, and Liberal Democrats are saying, look, in all fairness, this needs to be tackled. Do you look back now on your involvement in the coalition as a party as a mistake? No, because it was in the country's interest. Uh, yes, uh, my party paid a price for that. But um, I think Liberal Democrats played an important part when the country was in a crisis. But I also think we did uh, some really positive stuff on things like renewable energy. I'm very proud that Liberal Democrats nearly quadrupled Britain's renewable energy, made as a world leader. When it was hard to sell? It was hard to sell. I mean, uh, Tories fought it. I mean, it went... Well, the current Prime Minister was writing in the yeah, Daily Telegraph right. uh, that uh, a wind turbine couldn't take the skin off a rice pudding when I was fighting for it. So I know he's now Johnny come lately. He's now, he's now <laughs> saying, oh, is it totally welcome all the sinners who repent. Yeah, 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 of course I do. Although I wish they'd do a lot more. Yeah. Uh, Britain uh, should be a world leader. We were a world leader under the Liberal Democrats. We're falling behind now because uh, the Conservatives are not, not taking this further forward. And I think Ukraine and uh, Putin's wicked uh, invasion shows why I think we were right, because the why I wanted to invest in uh, other sources of energy, like renewables, wasn't just because of climate change, important that it is, but also our energy independence mm. Our energy security. So it wasn't, wasn't a mistake, it was important because you felt that it wouldn't have worked having a minority government or whatever, and the, the uncertainty of that, you gave a certainty, but you got slightly swallowed by the Tory monster Well, I mean, in that coalition. Listen, I, I'm proud of taking millions of people out of a tax. Well, you know, they, yeah. It was the Liberal Democrats' policy on tax that cuts. That was Danny Alexander's policy. Yeah, uh, and Liberal Democrats did that, and actually, if you remember, Mr Cameron said it couldn't be done. 
well, we did it. Mm. And so we have a track record, right, um, on this. You know, we, I think some people think, you know, we're more to the left on the economy. If you look at our record, we've talked about cutting taxes for low paid. We're, we're proposing a tax cut now. We believe in free enterprise, free trade. And I think sometimes uh, if you want to, a party that believes in free trade and competition, you shouldn't be looking at the yeah. Conservatives, you should be looking at the Liberal Democrats. Now, you're, you're less, less of a man than when I, we first met. You're slimmer. <laughs> well, yeah. what, what's happened? Well, lost some weight. Um, no, the listen. I, I you get to a point in your life when you think you know, I really need to do something because I had put on quite a bit of weight. How heavy were you? Uh, I'll tell you my uh, weight. Yeah, okay, I was sixteen stone during the I, lockdown. I was more than that. More than that, yeah. yeah and you're yeah. about my height. You're about five eleven. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Five eleven. Oh, spot on. Knew I needed to lose weight. I mean, a, a big reason is my kids. Mm. I've got to be honest with you. I've got a little girl who's eight. I want to be around. I want to be healthy for her because she's the light of my life, as you can imagine. So is my son. And my son in particular, he is severely disabled. He needs 24-7 care. Uh, and my day starts by getting him up at 6 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, you've been to notice he's now 14 and he's going to get older and he's going to get bigger and he's going to get heavier and get stronger. Uh, and I'm probably going to get weaker and older <laughs> and more fr- fragile. So um, uh, the fitter I can be, the longer I can be, the longer I can be fitter, the better it is for John uh, and, and his care. And so that is a massive motivation. But was, was COVID, the, the, the fear of being a bit uh, overweight and then succumbing to COVID was what drove this weight loss? Yeah, well, I started thinking about my health during COVID, as lots of people did. But what I did, though, I started running. And I did the NHS app, Couch to 5K, I don't know if you've heard it. Um, the problem was I did it and I really enjoyed it, but I hadn't lost any weight and I was putting too much strain on my knees. And so I hurt my knee and that sort of made me think, you know what, Ed, actually fitness is great, but you've got to lose the weight. Yeah. Uh, and so I be, you know, came a bit of a rabbit for a while. Uh, yeah. Uh, so what did, you, what did you cut down? You used, how did you? I get the cut of the carbs. The know, carbs gone? Carbs gone. What are they, potatoes? Potatoes, rice, pasta, bread, all that stuff. Just gone? Gone totally. Uh, so is dairy. No dairy? No dairy, uh, no meat. Um, that was tough. <laughs> uh, it's tough. I'm, I'm still keeping strict. I eat vegetables, uh, fruit, uh, fish, um, and I'm careful on different things. I was zero alcohol uh, for two months. I have to be confessed to you that was quite tough. It so I have the odd glass now. That keeps me going. Gosh, that's quite a dramatic uh, um, re- re- regimen they gone, isn't it? Yeah. I feel so much better. For Do you? Oh, yeah. New suits. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, my suits were falling off me. I know. Uh, so yeah, this is a new suit I've got. Looks great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. It's, it's quite a that's quite a dramatic weight loss. And what, and what do you miss the most? Well, um, bacon sandwich. No meat. No meat. I'm a bit of a bacon sarnie. I yeah. do like a bacon sarnie. Yeah. Not like Ed Miliband. You eat it privately. Yeah, eat it privately. I'm a, I do like my roast beef and Yorkshire pud. I've tended to eat meat for most of my life. I mean, there's a period when I didn't, but most of my life I've eaten meat and I'm not giving it up. I mean, I think I just eat a lot less meat, to be honest, a lot less meat. My wife is basically a fish-eating vegetarian. Mm. um, Classic Lib Dem, then. Well, well, she's doing it for health reasons, I know, and and, um, uh, she's a Lib Dem. Uh, Are you a vegan? uh, Well, I'm not going to be a vegan permanently. I'm eating, I'm behaving like a vegan now. It's just eating less stuff, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Exercising yeah. as well, because now I've lost the weight. Exercise is really much easier. So I've bought myself a rowing machine. I'm going swimming a bit more. Um, and do, I'm doing things like not taking the lift and walking up the stairs, yeah. watching my step count, basic things. What's next, a marathon for you? Uh, <laughs> hold on a minute. Uh, maybe. I'm, I, you know, Tim Farron is a head of I've got to make sure my knees will fully recover. But uh, listen, I haven't. I want to lose more, and hopefully I can. I think when I got elected, I was 14 stone. So I'm, I'm now... Uh, Slightly less heavy than I was when I got married, which yeah. is a great start, a great thing. Uh, but I want to be slightly less heavy than I was when I got elected. So sub-14 stone by the time you enter government, uh, David. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, David, the leader of the Lib Democrats, thanks for talking to us today. On Thank Top you of very Politics. much. Thank Chipper. you. Uh, David there. Now, if we're doing a tour of the main political parties in today's episode, that means our next stop is Labour. Lisa Nandy is the Labour MP for Wigan. She's also the Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up. She has been in the news this week over suggestions she's uncomfortable about her party leader, Sir Keir Starmer, trying to pressure the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, 
over the Partygate affair, when people are battling the very real consequences of a cost-of-living crisis. So I thought I'd give her a call for her thoughts on next week's local elections. And, of course, Partygate. Lisa Nandy, Shadow Leveling Up Secretary, welcome again to Chopper's Politics. How are you? I'm good. I'm uh, wearing out my trainers at the moment, knocking on doors across the country. Absolutely. And we're coming to you in Wigan, of course, levelling up land, as Michael Gove might say. Have you been to Wigan yet? Has he responded to your invitation? He has, actually. He came a few weeks ago, met with my local college principal and a few others to see some of the work that we're doing here and also hear about why we need far more support from the government if we're going to make this a success. Did he meet him or was it was it um, a, a yeah, guerrilla yeah. tactic by him? No, no, it was, um, you know, it's a, a straightforward yeah. offer. In the end, this shouldn't be party political. You know, it's important for the next general election, but it's important for the country. And yeah. I want there to be a consensus that investing in places that have seen decades of decline is what any responsible government would make a priority. You sound more positive about levelling up than when we, when we last spoke, when we discussed the, the Roman references in that normal, enormous document. Are you coming around a bit more to what he's trying to do? I mean, I, I was never opposed to what he was trying to do. The problem is that he's the only one trying to do it. So that that paper was, you know, very clearly not backed by the Treasury. It's why the analysis was so big and then the answers were so small. And since then, I think what we've seen pretty clearly is that Number 10 has sided with the Treasury and pretty, killed off any chance of having a really sort of transformational approach to this while they're in office. I mean, goodness knows who's going to be the Prime Minister by the time we get past the local elections. I have no idea. But <laughs> as long as Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are in charge, I think there's no real prospect of this happening. But for me, that makes it even more important that we step forward and convince the country that we can do this. It's things like bus services, isn't it? That's all the, the FT putting a, a piece about the 40-year decline in bus services on its front pages this week. I thought it was really important. I, I think bus services, for example, is a classic thing which... I don't think Westminster ever really understands, and it's a kind of, it's a, you know, trains have, have a hard enough time attracting investment, but buses is even worse, isn't it? But that, that's one of the key key areas, I think, which you can get easy wins on levelling up, which the government seems to not really grasp. I mean, I think it's not just that we have completely ignored what is happening to most people in the country, you know, obsessing about trains when the vast majority of people travel on buses, and those exactly. services have fallen apart over the last decade but I think the bigger issue actually is is that when people do try to raise those things they're mocked for them do you remember Jeremy Corbyn at PMQs years ago raising buses and the outrage from some political commentators and journalists not you but you know some you know mocking him saying my goodness what is this transport questions how could you possibly be raising bus services but to people across this country these are this is a difference between whether you can take up an apprenticeship or not this is whether mm. you can get home on time to read your kids a bedtime story this mm. is you know the fabric of our of our communities yeah. that has been falling apart I think I should have a pause there for the first time I've heard a Labour frontbencher talk about Jeremy Corbyn in a good way since he stood down as leader. But that's good. Yeah, we were totally right. I, mean, I remember the reaction to that, those questions, and it was appalling, I thought, and completely misjudged. But in terms of what people do care about, of course, there's been lots of talk about Partygate. And you've said recently that, it, that Partygate isn't really where normal people are, people out there worrying about cost of, the cost of living crisis. That's the case, right? No, I think there are there are some people in this country who care very, very passionately about Partygate and their right to do so for two reasons. One is that there are lots of people who lost loved ones and didn't say goodbye in the pandemic. And, you know, it breaks my heart to read some of the letters that have been coming into my office about it. One woman who lost a dad, he was alone in hospital, he was confused. None of them were there because they respected the rules. And she wrote to me and said, I feel like a fool for doing yeah. this now when the Prime Minister was doing what he was doing. So there's no question that Partygate matters. And it matters that you have a Prime Minister who not only breaks his own rules when he expects us to obey them, but also that he just won't tell the truth about it. Because if you can't, if you can't trust him on this you can't really trust him on anything that that doesn't distract from the fact that for the vast majority of people in this country at the moment there is a crisis that is engulfing families and businesses people literally don't know how they're going to keep their heads above water how they're going to afford the weekly shop how they're going to pay their energy bill how they're going to meet their mortgage payments and this is affecting people that 
actually have been largely protected from some of that in recent decades, who are now really, really feeling the pinch. There was a bit of sort of gossiping in Westminster this week saying that Kira and I had fallen out about this, but you can see that this is what we really, really focus on at the moment. You know, we called for an emergency budget over the weekend. We've been out all week trying to raise issues about rising petrol prices and the need to get a windfall tax on the oil and gas producers. And the reason that we're doing it is because things really are falling apart for most families in this country. And that's why I've been so critical of levelling up as well, because it really is just a nonsense to have Mm. cabinet ministers walking around talking about a Medici-style renaissance when people haven't got money to spend on the high streets and in local businesses and everything is falling apart. Where is Labour at the moment in the polls? It's doing very well in London, as you might expect, but do you think it's not doing well enough outside of the capital? Is that to do with Keir Starmer's leadership? Is it a bit lacklustre? There's been some focus group work done on that recently, which says that Keir is a nice bloke, a decent man, but he's not cutting through. I think there's a reason that any opposition party all over the world has struggled over the last few years, and that's the pandemic. People have been so focused with day-to-day survival that politics really has taken a back seat. And I understand that because, my, you know, my own family and my, my community has been no exception to that. We've just been trying to keep going. I think, actually, reflecting on the last 12 years that I've been in Parliament, I think we are in a much stronger position than we've been at any point over that decade. We've got a a candidate for prime minister that people believe could be prime minister. They like him, they're open to him. I think it's absolutely right to acknowledge that they want to hear more from us. But to be honest with you, that is why I'm in this job, because Keir and I are absolutely determined that what people will hear from us is not just an opposition to this Tory government, but a genuine alternative that they can get behind, that they understand their own place in it and their community's place and puts people back at the centre of that. That's why I was so keen to move in the reshuffle. And over the next few months, you'll hear a lot more from me on that. Just back to next Thursday. What does success look like for Labour? I've seen forecasts of 800 seat gains crossing in the Wales. Is that, is that, way, is that a, good, a good result? Is that what you're expecting? I mean, I, I don't th- think we'll see huge dramatic changes next week, partly for fairly boring reasons that the the way of, in which the seats that are up for grabs have fallen this time round means that there isn't huge scope for massive changes. The Conservatives, when these seats were last up, did really badly and ha- how far they can fall, I'm not sure. I think there is huge discontent though around the country. That's what I've been picking up in every nation and region. I've been in Scotland, I've been in Wales, I've been up and down England and I've just picked up so much frustration at the status quo. People really do, they want things to start to improve and they want it to start happening quickly. Yes, but it's far more about things like town centres that have been taken over by drugs gangs, you know, lack of police resources so that it feels that very little is being done about that. It's Those are the sort of bread and butter issues that you'd expect in a, in a local election, but really are at the forefront of people's minds at the moment. You, you mentioned Partygate there, and um, we, we, I was in um, Wandsworth this week, and I, I was really stunned actually by the reaction from uh, Conservative voters about, about Partygate and about the way Boris Johnson has dealt with that and what it means about his own integrity. I, I won't bother asking you what you think of Boris Johnson, but isn't it in Labour's interest that Boris Johnson hangs on as leader? I mean, he's, he's a vote winner for Labour at the moment. I, I, I don't think it's in the country's interest. And I don't think you can possibly make that argument as a political party that is seeking to govern this country in order to improve it. You know, he's... I also think that this is doing real damage to the whole of politics. I think the anger is largely directed at the Conservative Party. But I think, you know, you look you look at some of the stuff that they've been doing this week, just trying to, you know, these, are non, these briefings about Angela Rayner and well. politics. You look at some of the, you know, stuff that's going on in the House of Commons that, you know, MPs like Caroline Noakes have talked about so compellingly. I, it's just, you know, people look at it and think this is rotten to the core. And... We've got to win back people's trust so that we can clean this up and sort this out. And Boris Johnson makes that so much harder for all of us. It makes it harder for the country. I, I really want him to go. How, how do you find being a, being a, a woman in, in Parliament? Um, I have always found it pretty difficult to talk about this because I don't want to put women off 
coming into Parliament because I've seen the benefit that there is of more women there, not least that when I've had to put up with absolute sexist rubbish, it's been women of all political parties who've come forward and been really supportive. I remember as a new MP making a speech once about UK export finance and sitting down and um, a, a journalist taking an image of my top that I was wearing, putting it into a national newspaper, putting it around on Twitter and having to put up with every national newspaper and a lot of male MPs talking about my breasts for several weeks. And I remember it was Sarah Tether, who was the Lib Dem MP, who was the first person to say to me, don't let the um, so-and-sos get you down in slightly more choice language than that. And lots of women MPs coming forward and saying this is absolutely disgraceful. And it's still going on that. It's, I mean, it's MP watching a pornography in the, in the House of Commons, unbelievably, this week. The thing that I was really, I was thinking about this week when what happened with what happened to Ange is that, you know, this sort of stuff I just take on the chin now, which is maybe even worse. I mean, that you just, you know, you just, you fight it, you stand up to it, but it's not unusual to expect it. I think the bigger issue actually is for those newer MPs who've come in, who are cutting their teeth, who are finding their voice. And I think a lot of this is deliberate. I think it's deliberately to tell women to know your place and pipe down it's no accident to me that I was voicing my own opinions and I was making a fairly radical argument in the House of Commons when this happened to me. It was, you know, it's a way of silencing women and trying to keep us quiet. And the great thing about Angela Rayner and Caroline Oates and lots of other women is that they just simply won't put up with it anymore. And that's been a step change since I've been since I've been in Parliament. We, we are not going to put up with this anymore. Did you have faith in, in this grievance system? There's dozens of complaints gone in, and it might take months to resolve. I mean, is that? Do you think there needs to be more firm action more quickly? I think it's right to have an independent process and to be able to deal with this in a way that is swift and fair. Um, not least because there are going to be people who put in malicious complaints. You know, it happens in politics in every arena. So we've got to make sure that it's swift and fair, and those decisions can be upheld. I think I'm more worried about. The, the situation of staff members in Westminster than I am of MPs because I think the repercussions for them of making a complaint are so much bigger and the you know the reasons why you would not do that are, are so much more present and I don't think we've done enough to support staff. I think we need to do far, far more. And Westminster appears to attract this behaviour, doesn't it? I think it's the culture. Um, I think there's a sort of arrogance amongst some MPs. I mean, I I have to say to you, most MPs are not like this. And well, you know, because you know, you know a lot of us. But there are more of us that are normal human beings than you <laughs> would imagine from this sort of debate. But there is there is a sort of arrogance and an, a sense of entitlement amongst some male MPs. I think you find it everywhere. But if I'm really honest, you find it much, much more on the conservative side. I think mm. just because you've got people who are used to being privileged, and you get a lot more of them. That's not to say that anyone who, who is wealthy and privileged is that therefore decides to watch porn in the House of Commons and go around groping women. But I, I just I think there's a this sort of sense of protecting the powerful and um, a sense of entitlement. And that is it's one of the reasons why I've been so dismayed watching what Boris Johnson is doing to politics, because I think that he perpetuates that culture and makes it harder for us to deal with some of the problems that arise in the House of Commons. I mean, he, he would say he tweeted in favour of Angela on Rayner on Sunday. He wrote to her saying, this is not in my name, these conversations. I mean, he's, he's doing everything he can. I mean, he, he was right to say it, and it's welcome, it's welcome that he said it. But, um, you know, he's no stranger to sexist comments and derogatory comments about women himself. And I just think when you, you, know, you look at some of the decisions to reinstate the whip to Tory MPs have been... Being, being investigated for yeah. sexual misconduct because it's politically expedient. I think these things are just so, so damaging. Yeah. Now, Lisa Nanda, you know this is just me, you and me talking and no one's listening. Um, <laughs> you, you, you did run for, for leader, didn't you, all those, all those years ago, several years ago. Do you still want to be leader, given, given the state of politics at the moment? Could you do a better job than Keir Starmer? I want to be the Secretary of State for levelling up, and I genuinely, <laughs> I genuinely mean this. I want to be You're such a politician. No, you know what? <laughs> The thing is that I've been an MP for 12 years now and every single day of that I've walked around those division lobbies 
voted and lost. I've had a front row seat to the devastation that has been wreaked on my community and many, many others. I'm in politics to change it. I think it was um, Karl Marx who said the point is to change it. And I am determined that before I go off to retire, I am going to be in a position with Keir and with the team to actually change this for people. That's the promise I made to the people of Wigan the day I was elected as a fresh-faced, recently turned 30-year-old. And somehow I am going to make sure that we do this and that we deliver on that promise. Lisa Nandy, Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up, thank you for joining us today on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on and all the best. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. If you enjoyed this show, please do leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this show. And you can also hear my daily thoughts about politics in my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. It delivers daily insights and political gossip straight into your email inbox every weekday. And the link to sign up to that is in the show notes to this episode. And be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column every Friday evening at 7pm on the Telegraph's website and in Saturday's newspaper. Thank you to my guests this week, Caroline Noakes, Sir Ed Davey and of course Lisa Nandy. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Theodora Luludis. And as ever, thank you to you for listening. And finally, please do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.